Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge on sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to your partner in Success Radio, the Closers Inner Circle podcast with me, Denise Griffiths, and my very dear friend and honestly one of my five favorite people in the world, Ben Gay III. And I often say this, he's one of my five favorite. The truth is he's in the top two. So there you go. So Ben, today we're talking about how salespeople often overlook the importance of gathering feedback from customers who just chose not to buy. And we've talked about this a bit, but I, and I get why people don't want to go back and visit, you know, the floor of their shame, you know, like, oh, geez, you know, that, that person kicked me out. But they don't know what they don't know, do they? So let's delve in. We're, right now, I've got the closers part two open, and I am in page 189. So I am going to let you just go with it because this is a big topic, I think, and one that probably is not paid much attention to. If I'm, I think I'm right about that. Tell me, am I right or am I wrong? Okay, what happened? Can you hear me now? What the heck? Hang on a second. Oh, not again. Ben, can you hear me at all? I can't hear you. I now. can hear you perfectly. There you are. This is. I hear you perfectly. <laughs> So the audience knows we couldn't get connected earlier this morning when we were supposed to have this podcast. And it's just been, you know, you have those days when none of your technology works. I've got my hand in the air waving. None of my technology is working today. And I've been saying bad words all day long. I'm probably going to have something smite me down at the end of the day. But, okay, Ben, I'm assuming you heard me. So take the microphone so I can go curse. Uh, if for our listeners, if you have your copy, the closers part two, as Denise just said, turn to page 189. The headline is "Ask Them." They are the experts, and I'm not going to read the book to you. You can do that on your own if you uh, don't have the closers. This, these uh, broadcasts will be a lot more meaningful to you if you do. And Denise has been kind enough to post on the website, how you get it and where you go to get it. And they will come to you signed, dated, and guaranteed for life. So if you're clever enough to remember that you ordered it and then you retire 20 years from now and don't need the book anymore, either give it to a young kid or return it. (laughs) Our accountants are not fond of that policy because it leaves an outstanding liability, they say. But uh, it's the way I prefer to operate. Anyway, read read that chapter and you'll have a full understanding of the concept of talking to the customers and so on. Now let me reduce it to general conversational terms. I've found that the closer you get to the ground, and by that I mean to the baseline, to where people really operate, the better the information. And uh, with using the closers part two, if you set up the interview on the phone, in person, over the internet, whatever way you've made contact, among other things, you have established with them that you're going to treat them fairly, squarely, decently by the rules, and that, and you have them agree to each of these with fair enough, and they'll say yes, they always do because it's non-threatening at that point. And uh, 
that includes I'll be straight with you, you be straight with me. That means you can ask me any question and I'll answer it and I get to ask you any question. So now you've sort of set the table as how the interview will go, good or bad, positive or negative, sale or no sale. And uh, the questioning of the customer isn't just limited to if they don't buy. Uh, if someone's really excited and happy, uh, I might say something along the lines of, you seem as excited about this as I have been for years or for ever since I joined the company or whatever. Tell me what really struck you. How come you're this excited about it? That would be the positive side of it. But the implication when we set this particular seminar up was that something went wrong and you want to find out what it is. Well, get close to the ground. And these examples are around you all the time. I'm always amazed when we go to the checkout stand at a grocery store and there's people there with arm braces and hand wraps and everything, the checkers, carpal tunnel syndrome and sprains and bad backs and so on. And the reason is, among others, is that whoever designed the check stand layout had never worked in a check stand. They don't know that it should be on the other side or between you and the customer or the counter should be higher or lower or what have you. But if the designer of the check stands would go spend 10 minutes with the people who work in them eight hours a day, they would quickly figure out the mistakes they made and how to protect, how to correct them in the future. So in a sales situation, I use that. I've laid the groundwork. I've gotten permission. We know we're going to be honest with each other. I have the right to say or do or ask anything I want, as do they. And let's assume the sale went south. I now have the right to say, once we know it's not going to happen either today or ever or whatever, say, let me let me ask you something as a, as a favor. Uh, I've learned more sometimes from people who uh, don't buy than I do from those who do buy. What exactly uh, did uh, prevented you from buying today? And this is not a continuing sales presentation, Mr. Bob. Uh, this is I really want to learn so I give better service to the next person I talk to. What went wrong today? What caused you to say no instead of yes or put me off with a maybe or you got to think about it or something. And then I would have with me, and you look at them, and if they're ready to respond, let them go because there might be something right off the top. Your price is too high. I don't like the way you dress. You didn't treat my secretary properly when you came in. could be any number of things. Uh, but, for instance, I've, I've told the story before. Uh, I was looking out my office window one day, and it was roughly when a, a guy was due to call on me. And so I, I knew he was going to be coming. I looked out the window as what I assumed was his car pulled up, uh, and he got out. And then he cleared his throat and spit in my parking lot. Yeah. And uh, not, over, not, not over in the grass, on the parking lot. Yeah. So uh, I made a mental note, you know, he had an appointment, I respect their time, and I was curious as to what he was selling. But when we got down to the end, uh, I said, well, I appreciate it, and I might get back to you, give me your business card, thank you very much. He should have at that point said, what went wrong? And I would have said to him, I didn't, but because he didn't ask, I would have said, you will never sell me anything ever again. You showed great disrespect and unsanitariousness, if that's a word, being unsanitary, by spitting in my parking lot, not in the grass, not in a bush, not in your Kleenex, on my parking lot. And where so I don't walk. like people. Yeah, mm -hmm. where people walk and kids might play, uh, you know, employees of, child, of uh, children of employees or what have you. So <laughs> this isn't a stall tactic. I'll never buy from you. Buy from people like you. Now, here's the good news. Now you know that you're on display from the time you leave your house till the end of the day. 
all the time. People are looking, cameras are looking. <laughs> we live in a surveillance society. So you can assume if you spit in somebody's parking lot, somebody might see it, probably will. And some of them will react like I'm reacting. So here's what you've learned today. You're under surveillance and don't spit in other people's parking lots or on their right. sidewalks right. or what have right. you. And so you're much kinder. Yeah, we are watching, yeah. and you are much <laughs> kinder than I would. I actually had a, an incident years ago when I still owned a, a brick-and-mortar business, and there was a salesperson, you know, a gemstone salesperson that we were expecting, and my front windows on this building opened up to the parking lot, which was a small not a mall, but it was a small, there were other businesses. There's a restaurant next mm-hmm. to me. You know, there were other businesses there. So it was a pretty wide open parking lot. And this guy snagged the first spot right in front of the windows, got out of his car, put his briefcase up on top of his car, and then dumped all his trash in my parking lot. He didn't make it in the building. He didn't. I walked out. I picked up his trash. I threw it in his window, and I told him to go. He never came back. I don't know why. I'm not that scary, either. but I was I was genuinely <laughs> angry. <laughs> and some of it was chicken bones. I made him pick that up. I said, pick that up and take it with you now. And he did, too. I mean, he couldn't get out of that parking lot. But I hope he doesn't do it to anybody else. I hope he learns something. Behind somebody in traffic the other day who took a bag, it looked like, you know, their leftovers from McDonald's or something. And I guess they had some of the use for the bag because they didn't throw the whole thing out. They shook the bag out and kept the bag oh, the and drive on down the highway. When I was young and uh, someone dumped trash, I used to see the $500 littering sign, you know, uh, that uh, I thought, well, that's a little excessive because I didn't have my morals straight yet, I guess. Uh, today, I would raise that to $5,000, and I impound your car. Uh, you, do, yeah. you just don't do that to me. I have a, a, power, a program to clean up America. A, don't throw anything down ever again, never. Uh, that solves a whole that 330 million pieces of trash that won't go out today. B, pick up at least a, a piece of trash. Sometimes I look like one of those highway workers picking up things as I go into the post office. For some reason, there's always a lot of litter there, and I'll pick up four or five things. But A, throw nothing out. B, pick up something once a day. And if everybody just did that, we would stop the clutter and start cleaning the old clutter at the rate of about 330 million pieces of things a day. It's really pretty simple, but it gets down uh, back to the subject matter, gets down to the uh, the uh, you're always under you're always under surveillance from the time when I go out the front door in the morning, uh, I say to myself sometimes out loud, it's showtime because everything from this point on is could be within sight of a prospect, a future prospect, a friend of a prospect or what have you. And I conduct myself accordingly, not because I'm a saint, but because I realize that you can make or break yourself without even realizing it's going on. And that has uh, positive and negative aspects. A dear friend of mine, Richard Burns, uh, was in the home improvement business, and he called on a client one day, a great big three-store, is at best I remember the story, I never saw the house, three-story Victorian with a swimming pool in the front and so on. And uh, as he's, he's, he's cut it close. He can get to the front door right on time. But he wound up being four or five minutes late because in the front yard was the swimming pool and their little girl with her mother uh, were playing in the pool and a little girl splashed him. Uh, not, you know, accidentally, but he got a little water on his suit. Instead of being mad or plunging on to the front door, he stopped and splashed some water back on her. He crouched on the side of the pool, and they had a little short water fight, and she was laughing, he was laughing. So he goes up to the house, knocks on the door. The older lady who owned the property and was the grandmother of the little girl, as it turned out, 
said, you know, hi, how are you? Come on in. He said, I'm really sorry I'm late. And she said, I know why you're late. I was I was watching it. You were playing with my granddaughter. And he said, well, she started it. And, you know, they <laughs> laughed. <laughs> they, they laughed, and he did his walk around of the house and measuring things and came back down. And this was so long ago, I'm not claiming to know the numbers, but it was a big job in its day. It'd be a big job now, but like $30,000, which would be a quarter of a million today from when it happened. And he sat down and explained it and uh, gave her the price. And she said, okay, let's do it. And uh, he gave her the look you give people when that's not exactly what you're expecting. This is when the mud wrestling normally starts. And he said, uh, well, super now, are you sure? Do you have any questions? She said something to the effect of no. And you're surprised that I bought so quickly, aren't you? And he said, well, yes, I am. I am. Tell me why. She said, because when you came up to the house or came onto the property, I was standing on that sofa over there looking out through the blinds, and I saw you stop, be polite to my daughter, take time, and with your suit on, get into a water fight with my granddaughter. And uh, so I decided right then, if your product seemed good and I could afford it, I was going to buy. So the point there is, He made the sale, and he didn't even know he had started the sale because people are watching you. You're under surveillance, and they're making judgments. By the same token, if he had come in and spit on her pool deck, I suspect the interview would have gone significantly different. So go back and ask them, how come, why? Remembering that you had permission to ask anything, and they have permission to ask you anything. It's not being rude just a matter of you screwing up your courage once or twice to do it, like closing, once people realize that they give a good solid sales presentation, the close is just a logical end to the conversation, should come at that point. Um, And by the same token, give your presentation, know where you are in the presentation, and then if it goes south, have the nerve to ask. The same nerve you had to summon up the first time you closed the sale. Have the nerve to ask. It's one way to look at it. I've had some come back at that point. Well, since you ask and you care, what about that? And they gave me some objection or question they hadn't before. And I'm a good questioner. I'm a good listener. But they come up with something new. And I said, well, look, I promise not to double back. Uh, and uh, reopen the sale. But I can answer that if you'd like to hear it. And I've given them the answer and close the sale. But it's not even a tricky way to close the sale. What it is is a way to gather information so you don't make that mistake again. There was a thing that was going around uh, years ago, you know, sales phrases, come and go, feel, felt, found. I was one of the originators of that phrase, and it got so popular. If you said it to a buyer or a prospect, well, I know how you feel. Others have felt the same way. Here's what they found. They'd cut you off before you got to feel or found and say, oh, you're going to tell me how others felt and and what they found and so on. So we had to quit using it for a while or rephrase it a little bit because it got so popular. Uh, In this technique of asking people, you know, what uh, what turns you off, what prevented you from taking positive action today, they don't hear that very often because most people don't have the nerve to do it. And they will frequently come clean uh, when you ask. But the point is, find out what it is. I found out one day, giving a sales presentation over the phone for a package of sales training material that we sell, I used to, and every, I had everybody else doing it. On script, you know, the first thing you get is this, the second thing you get is this, blah, blah, blah. And as each item came up, I gave the retail price if it wasn't part of this package. And the package had a, a pretty steep discount on it. But I'm talking to a guy one day, and it was a, I, I'm making up numbers. I think it was a $150 cassette program in it. And uh, he, I said, and, and then you get this, and that by itself would be $175. And he went, mm. and I heard the grunt. And uh, I asked him later on, 
uh, you bailed out on me early. What happened? He said, well, this was 175 that was 175 this was 2495 this was so-and-so. And so I tuned out before you got to the total price and then discounted it. I was already mentally gone. We changed the script that day. And we took out the individual pricing until we got to the end. And then we said something affects. So if you bought all of this individually at full retail, it would come to whatever, $875. But if you act today, you get it all for $299.95. That way he stayed with me till the end. And then he heard the high price and the low price in a matter of seconds lumped together. That's by, in that case, listening to the customer. And then to make sure I was right, I questioned him, you know, where did I lose you? And that's where I, uh, where I lost him. Susie heard the first 199 or the 175 or whatever. Susie heard that first big number. He was gone. <laughs> it's like when you see, pardon me for coffee, it's like when you see an ad in the paper for uh, uh, an RV or something. Uh, that one strikes me frequently on television and in the newspaper. We have this RV, and it's marked down, or you can get it at $135,000 off list. I wasn't spending—I wasn't planning on spending $135,000 total. Never mind that the discount. Uh, so you 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 take people or $10,000 off on an SUV. Hadn't really even thought about the price yet, and you're taking 10000 off. I'm old enough to remember when my first new Cadillac cost $2,500. So $10,000 off tells me that the remaining balance is going to be significant, and I might bail out on you there. But have the nerve to ask them, and then have the nerve not only to ask them, but have until you have it memorized, have it on a little notepad you carry with you, the things that it might be and ask them, you know, what caused you not to act. Uh, They may just give you an answer, but if they don't say, was it the price? Uh, Was it me? Did I say something wrong? Was it this? Was it that? Was it this? And careful questioning, kind and gentle, will generally get you the answers you need. May or may not get you that sale today but it will get you the answers you need for future sales. Your customer is like the cashier at the grocery store. He knows more about his situation than you ever will. But if asked properly, he'll tell you, he or she will tell you what that situation is. Uh, I was calling a guy one day and I said, uh, one of the popular buzz phrases, feel felt found, as I mentioned earlier, was we were taught, he's asking you a question What is the question he's asking you? And you find out by asking that. And I said, guy said, you know, blah, 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 and then objected uh, to the the price as it turned out. And uh, so we batted it around a little bit. But then I said to myself, I remember my training, he's asking me a question. What's the question? So I said, I think the question you're asking me he said, I didn't ask you. i got to get better at this. I've got to look. I called on a guy, when, Denise, when I was selling. I was a manufacturer's rep, and among my lines was Indiana glass. That's that white stuff you get your flowers in when, you know, from the floor shop. I don't think anybody ever buys it unless it comes with something from the floor shops. But that white milk glass. And Is that that hobnail given, stuff that's so huh? ugly that nobody – is that the hobnail stuff that – your grandma would keep in the cupboard for years and it got thrown away as soon as she passed. Yeah. Because it builds up. Everybody might use one. They might (laughs) want one flower vase, but if your grandmother lives to be 90, she's got 40 flower vases and uh, occasionally needs one. But yeah, that's the white glass. So I call on this guy. He was the, the owner or the chief buyer for the largest florist company in Atlanta and Indiana glass had given me a carload of glass exclusive to me. These were discontinued items, perfectly good, nothing wrong with them, but you know, they reshaped them or something. (laughs) They gave me this uh, carload 
of glass to sell, and no one else could sell it. It was mine to sell. So, uh, and I, it was roughly like 50% off. So uh, I call on this guy, and I finish up the presentation, and I said, uh, so what do you think, or whatever. I was a kid. I probably said something stupid, but what do you think? And he said, well, uh, I'm going to buy it. It's more than I need now, but I'm going to buy it anyway at full price over time, so I'll take it all. And I almost choked because I was about to make as much money on that one sale as I was probably going to make in a year as a manufacturer's rep with this particular company. And I said, fantastic. Uh, could I borrow your pen? And he said, why? And I said, well, I need to write up the order. He said, you don't have a pen on you? And I, I said, no, I, I forgot it or something. And he said, young man, I'm going to give you something much more valuable than an order. I'm not going to order. And the reason I'm not going to order is you were dumb enough to call on me as a salesperson without a pen. And you will never do that again because you will never forget this lesson again. Uh, you must be prepared to do business. So you have a wonderful day, and I'll think of you every time that I buy Indiana glass at full price, knowing I could have gotten it at half price if you'd been better. Now, I didn't ask him. I didn't have an opportunity to ask him the question, but that's getting close to the ground. The guy's telling you that he's doing something that's not even to his advantage to teach you a lesson. And here we are after that happened, 45, 63 years after that happened, I am never without a pen, never. It's I got one in my bathrobe. I probably got 50 right here on the desk. I have one in my pocket, my pants pocket. Uh, and every time I write up an order or do anything of significant state notes under the program that Dr. Napoleon Hill taught me, I think of that guy in Atlanta and the carload of Indiana glass I didn't sell because I didn't have a pen. Uh, so you, you get down close to the ground, you ask questions, you listen, and you learn. And uh, it's the best way to do it. We hired a new guy in the shipping department uh, a couple of months ago, I'm, saying, I'm guessing. And he'd been there uh, a week or two. And I walked in to talk to somebody about something. And he, he said, uh, Ben, could I, uh, could I give you a – I'm new, but can I give you a suggestion? And uh, I, I said, yeah. He said, how about two? <laughs> I said, sure. Well, this is one of those fresh eyes. He's close to the ground. He's the grocery store checker. He was told to, you know, seal up the box this way, put the books or whatever in this way, and so on, so they won't fall out and they won't bang up and get damaged in shipment and so on. And it was a little, I won't bore you with it, it'd be hard to describe over the phone, but there was a way we covered the labels so that, you know, they don't get scratched up. We put a little packing tape over them, uh, clear packing tape. He noticed that people were putting it down very carefully because two strips would almost cover the entire label if you got it exactly right uh, over to it, but it's got to be over on the edge so that it sticks to the box. And uh, he said, I, I've noticed everybody doing this, and then – he said, I figured out, turned out he was a mathematical savant. He said, I figured out that 87% of the time uh, it doesn't quite cover the label, so they wind up putting a third piece of tape on it anyway. And I said, well, what do we do about that? He said, you put the first tape on right in the middle of the label, knowing you're going to put three on it, and then you put the other two down, and you don't have to line it up so carefully. And he said, it's going to cost you about five inches of extra tape uh, per package. And the tape is, and he knew the yardage, you know, the tape is 100 feet long on the roll, and you're going to use an extra four or five inches, and not even an extra because sometimes they got it right, but it took them an extra two or three minutes to get it right. So he said, would, would you mind if, if I had the guys try this? one down the middle, one on each side, less measuring, a little more tape. I said, no, give it a try. 
and they all loved it. It sped up the process. We probably saved two or three hours grand total between all of them of uh, material of uh, time and the time we're paying for. And he caught it because he was new and fresh-eyed. If I was smart, I would have gone in and said to the new guy, you just got here and we haven't ruined you yet. What do you notice that we're doing wrong? Which, by the way, I now ask everybody. <laughs> oh, and the other thing was we were buying those uh, 8 by 10 I'm guessing, roughly, hard pieces of cardboard that you put in certain packages so the package won't bend. And uh, I, I don't know what they cost, 75 cents a dollar a piece. Been doing it for years. He said, there's something interesting. When I came in in the morning, the first day, they asked me to break down the boxes of stuff coming into us, break them down for recycling. And then the second thing I had to do was go to the warehouse and get uh, a package of uh, those cardboard pieces I was just talking about. And I noticed that the flaps on the boxes and the boxes themselves in some shipments are just made out of the same stuff as as the uh, packing carton material you're buying. Why don't you having somebody break it down? Why don't you have somebody cut the flaps off and part of the box off and quit buying outside stuff? He said, I figured out you got eight flaps on an average box, not counting the sides, which we can always use. You got eight flaps. A lot of them aren't are too big, so you cut them in half. You got 16 flaps instead of $16 for buying cardboard from an outside person. So if you don't mind, I'll be happy to break down the boxes and put them into inventory. And I'm looking at the others, and they said, hey, you never asked. <laughs> you <know>? Oh, no. <laughs> they, they, were, they were threatened by him. Well, I bet they're all looking for new things to share now, though. I bet you they're all looking with fresh eyes. Absolutely. And if you have people on a profit-sharing plan, they really get excited about that. Judy used to work at a bank here in town. It's all over Northern California, but the headquarters was here, and she knew the family. They'd known her family since the day they opened the bank. And uh, uh, I was standing beside her desk one day getting ready to take her to lunch. And uh, one of those inner office envelopes came by, you know, with names written on it and crossed off and the next person and the next person and so on. And I said, my God, that I've never seen quite that marked up. She said, well, we're on profit sharing. We don't throw envelopes that can be reused in the trash. And we don't spend our days counting paper clips either, but we don't throw paper clips out until they can't be used anymore. That's getting people in on the game. If I was running a dentist office, and I'm saying this because I just was consulting with a dentist office about profit sharing and so on, they said, what if the janitor gets wind of this, their, their property? And I said, he should be in on it. Everybody in this office should be in on the profit sharing so that everybody is looking uh, a little closer to the ground. Everybody is looking for an opportunity to cut costs, therefore increase profits, therefore increase their thing. And I remember with uh, Gigi at the bank thinking, because we were fresh together at the time, uh, thinking at the bank, well, that's neat, but how much could that possibly save? And then her profit-sharing check came, and it was 17, for the year, it was $17,000. And all you have to do so, is to get your share. It helps. It get, helps a lot. Yeah, all you have to do to get your share of that is don't throw out the paper clips um, and reuse the envelope. I've seen them right up the side of the envelope because they could get one more forwarding name and, and office in it before they threw it out. They became fanatical about it. So get your customer to participate in your service. Uh, Dick Burns sold a huge remodeling job on a three-story Victorian house because he was caught playing with the granddaughter and having fun with her. And a guy lost, I'll never know what he lost because I wasn't sure what he was selling or how much it would cost. But whatever it was, he lost that initial order and never came back. And if I recognize him, he never would come back because he spit in my driveway or in my parking lot. 
So and, ask him. He he should have asked. Yeah, him, you know. He should have. And then there's other stories where you may not have lost the sale because the sale was just one and done, but you almost lost the sale, but you lost future goodwill. And this happened to me some years ago, and I was still married, and my former husband had found his ideal car. I mean, he wanted this car so bad. I didn't think he was ever going to sleep again. It was a little Mercedes convertible, which I hated. <laughs> I already had a Mercedes, but I had an SUV. You know, I'm not, I don't drive little cars where I sit my butt on the ground and scooch and go, vroom, vroom. they scare me. I don't like them. But yeah, he and trying to get in and out of them. Yeah, and I'm tall. And, you know, he was tall. It's like, jeez, yeah. we looked ridiculous in that thing, but he wanted it. But he had bought it. He you know, made the agreement. He had the check in his hand, and he called me. He said, come see it. I want you to see it before, because I didn't care. You know, he could afford it. It was his car. I didn't care. But he wanted me to go look at it. And the minute then, I'll never forget this, the minute I walked in, that guy completely forgot about who he was selling that car to, and he started selling it like it was still on the lot, like it hadn't been sold, like that check wasn't on the desk. I, you know, I'm not often at a loss for words, but I was because mm-hmm. the words I wanted to say were not polite. You know, I wanted to tell him, shut <laughs> up. I, it's not my car. It's his. Look right there. He's to my left. Look at him. It's it's not my car. That guy, because I was so miffed over how he behaved, it was so skeevy. It was just so creepy that I told everybody who would listen to me, do not go to that dealership. And this guy, don't talk to him. And I mean, I guarantee you, he lost customers because I wasn't. Of course, the car landed in my driveway. I wasn't going to stop that, but I sure wasn't going to help this guy ever make another sale. The uh, people make up figures. I have friends who famous for certain studies they've done, and all I did was make up figures that sounded about right. And the reason I'm saying that is a prelude to what I'm about to say is I don't know if this is right, but it makes sense. An unhappy customer, the average unhappy customer will tell 17 people they don't like you or your product or your service or your whatever. And a happy customer will tell three or four. So, And they have to be encouraged to do that, even bribed uh, to do that. So uh, bad news yeah, travels true. far faster and more rapidly, uh, more rapidly and farther than good mm. news. Yeah, I mean, I went straight out and I talked to everybody I could. Do not go to this dealership ever. <laughs> this is why. And I was pretty animated about it apparently. But man, that guy made me mad. I mean, this was I don't know, ten years ago, twelve years ago. I'm still mad about it. I mean, it was really rotten what he tried to do. Yeah, and part of that probably, besides he was ignorant, uh, maybe bordering on stupid, and you can't fix stupid, but uh, ig- I'll be kind and say ignorant, was he went to the seminar where they say 70% of all sales are decided on by the lady. So he figured that now the boss was here he at you, he had to start all over again. We had a similar one when we bought a GMC, Tahoe, XL, something. I forget all the names on it, but uh, the the big GMC, three three rows of seats and everything. And uh, I uh, I said this is this is to a friend of mine who was the sales manager, Dave Clark. I said this is the one we want, Dave. And he gave me discounts, and and it was the a brand new car, but the end of the model year, so that saved ten thousand and so on. So to be a nice guy, he called over one of his new salesmen and said, uh, "The gays want to buy this car." Oh, and the other big thing was it was six thousand pounds, which was treated differently for taxes. Uh, you could write it all off like it was a ream of paper. If it was over 6,000 pounds, I only had two, uh, Toyota Sequoia, I think, and the big GMC, whatever. Only two they had that were 6,000 pounds or more. So we were just down to what color do you, Gigi, what color do you want? And the one, the Toyota was orangey looking and the GMC was white. She said, I like the white one. So Dave turns to this guy and says, okay, write it up. And he says, all right, but first, <laughs> and he raises the hood. 
and goes into his uh, automobile salesperson 101 presentation. And we all write it up. The, the key <laughs> phrase being write it up. It's sold. It's done. <laughs> That's what they finally yelled at him. Shut up and write it up. The only decision to be made as you approach was orange or white. It's the decision has been made, right? Yeah, but uh, then let's do the test drive. He's not taking a test drive, you idiot. (laughs) This is why his test drive will be driving home. You know, we always hear about, you know, car dealerships and car sales, and there's always that one or two people in our case that, you know, they become the joke. They're the meme. I mean, they're what everybody else talks about. But there are great people in no matter where you are, a jewelry store, a grocery store. Mm-hmm. I've met some wonderful salespeople in a grocery store of all you know, places. But yep. there's always going to be that, you know, kind of, oh, geez, you're one of those, aren't you? <laughs> and those are the ones that stick with your head. And then they get, they almost reach, I don't know even how to say this, such a, how do it like mythic proportions? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I've heard yep. about you. <laughs> You're a myth. <laughs> One of the greatest places I've ever recruited while building sales organizations is waiters and waitresses and maitre d's and so on, because they're used to dealing with people. They're used to having to put up with rude people. They're, you know, every situation on earth goes on in a restaurant in an eight-hour shift. Uh, when I worked at San Quentin, people say, uh, how does San Quentin relate to general society? I said, it is general society. Everything that happens in your neighborhood in a year happens at San Quentin in 24 hours. It's just under pressure and at higher speed. I don't know how many murders you have in your neighborhood, but here at San Quentin we have oh, one or two a week. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And, and police trying to solve it and so on. Everything goes on. So anyway, I have recruited so many waiters and waitresses. A young lady is on my mind right now. I recruited out of a local restaurant center to a local Toyota dealership. She became the top salesperson within a month or two at that dealership and then in the region. And then she was recruited and lured to Atlanta, I think it was where she's going on to be a big, big deal. And it was all based on her personality, her ability to shift gears, uh, kid around, and so on. In Tiburon, there was a, there is a restaurant called The Dock, and their maitre d' was a guy named Carlos Fong, movie star, handsome. We would order flaming shish kebabs just to see him come flying out of the kitchen with the shish, four shish kebabs, all of them flaming like a bullfighter. He was just unbelievable. So one day, and the ladies loved him, so one day I was running a big cosmetic company. I said, Carlos, do you speak Spanish? And he rattled off a bunch of stuff in Spanish. And uh, I said, how would you like to be president of our Mexican operation? He said, are you kidding me? I said, yeah, what do you make here? And I said, don't tell me. I'll triple it. Chips and all, I'll triple it. And you just have to go through training where you go down there and we teach you how to be president. And to the last time I saw him, 20, 25 years ago, he was saying, I don't understand how I got that job. I said, because I watched you and I saw how you handled people. And you're good looking and my wife loves you and I want you out of town. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Now the truth comes out. Pay attention. Ask them. Ask them. What do, you, what do you want? And when you read in the closers part two, go to page 257 in the back, and no matter what you went there to read, like the subject we're talking about today on, one, on page 189, uh, read sales infiltration starting on page 257 and understand how to get in with people. I can ask anybody anything when I take the time to set the stage. And they are the experts, and they will tell you what's right about your – they might even get you out of that particular segment of the career. If you ask 20 people uh, what slowed us down here, and 18 of them said your price is ridiculous. 
uh, you're in a position to either, if you can, change the price, uh, build the value and all, all the things sales trainers say, but there are things that are just ridiculously overpriced. If you can change it, change it. If you can't, go somewhere where they're not. I was doing a sales seminar one day, and there were a bunch of uh, you. It was dealership, many dealerships, a couple hundred automobile salespeople. And now we're down to question and answers. And this guy raises his hand and says, "Uh, "We're with the Yugo dealership." Uh, how would you suggest we sell more Yugos? Now, for some of your younger listeners, it was made in Yugoslavia uh, when other cars started at eight or nine thousand dollars. It started at three thousand because it was a piece of junk, and everybody knew it was a piece of junk. And they said we're having trouble selling them. What would you suggest? I said I would suggest when the seminar is over today, you go back to the dealership, clean out your desk, and go find somebody who's selling a car that's worth the money. If you insist on staying with Hugo and you want to know how to close more people, get a gun, take people into your closing room, and tell them you'll kill their children if they don't buy the car today. Oh. That's the only. That's the only way I know. They were that bad. Oh, it's horrible. You oh go up. I've, I've talked to Hugo salesmen who would walk up to the car, just you know, let them sit down on the inside, pull on the door handle, it would come off in their hand. <laughs> so, oh, it, it was good. no. I think they still sell them, and hopefully they've improved. I haven't even heard the name. I've never the last seen time one. I told. Yeah, it was horrible. And these <laughs> people in there, and you could, I could pick out the Hugo salesman from the front of the room. They were the ones in the shabby suits who didn't make it anywhere else in selling. So they'd side sell Hugos because they were cheap. Well, they were cheap <laughs> because they were no good. And uh, so, and and the story goes, I couldn't prove this in court, but the story goes that that entire sales force went back to the Hugo dealership, cleaned out their desk, and scattered around the county or the city into Chevrolet and Cadillac and Dodge dealerships and so on, and lived happily ever after, or most of them did. Some of them probably shouldn't have been in sales to begin with until they got some better mindsets and better training. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are people who, it's like, you know, I would like to be a rock and roll star. I would when I was growing up. I just have a couple of problems. Uh, I'm an old white man with no rhythm, and uh, I can't carry a tune. So those are the only two things holding me back from show business. There are people who drift into selling because, unfortunately, we don't have many qualifications if you can breathe, you know, we used to kid in multi-level marketing, we carry a little pocket mirror, one of those things ladies carry in their purses, in our side coat pocket. And when somebody would, you know, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this, we'd pull out the mirror, put it under their nose, and if we got vapor, we'd show it to them and say, you're qualified. You're in. Oh, are you, this is true? You really yeah. did that? Yeah. Oh my gosh! You know, it was, and you know, this is why people hate salespeople. And... No, I I get it. Yes. But, and I've told you this before. I was accused when I was pretty young. I was in a, a I'm pretty sure it was a, um, a feed store. I had just accidentally bought two little piglets at a at an auction. I don't talk with my hands anymore. But I was in there trying to figure out who wanted these little pigs. I didn't want them. I didn't need them. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> And I remember this tiny, and I've shared this with you, but this tiny elderly farmer tapped me on the arm and he said, honey, you are the best natural salesperson I've ever seen. And I wanted to slug him. I was so insulted. (laughs) (laughs) At least he didn't call you a whore. No, but I'm sure my hands went up on my hips. I what? But I was polite to him. I, I know he could tell that I was very taken aback, but Every day I think about that man because he wasn't wrong. I just didn't know it. Yep. Yeah. As Carlos Fong thought he was going to be a maitre d' the rest of his life. Um, But he had Sam Goldwyn, the old movie producer, said, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. Carlos Fong had it. You have it. Mine wasn't quite so obvious, but with a little training, I developed. So there I Zig Ziglar. Zig came out of his mother's womb laughing, giggling, telling stories. 
and fortunately was raised in the South where stories are really valued. Uh, the longer, the better. So he he was a natural. And I, I tell people, you can't be Zig. You can't even be me. You can't be Tony uh, Robbins unless you take growth hormones and have a piano <laughs> keyboard set in your mouth. Um, right. They you are unique, you. but you can be yeah. You but you can be you, and a well trained, well groomed you is fine. I've mentioned several people in this uh, conversation today, and as I was talking about them, I was picturing them. With, except for Carlos Fong, there wasn't a looker in the group. It it wasn't looks. It was either a natural skill or they decided to get serious about the business. And serious about the business includes having the nerve to ask somebody, why why did you buy so I can do more of it? And why didn't you buy so I can do less of it? And that's crucial. It is. I've talked until too much I started, too long. No, no, no. When, when I started reading the closers and I got to, you know, the, the chapters that we're talking about, in particular sales infiltration, I didn't know diddly about sales. I mean, I really have never considered myself a salesperson, although we all sell. Watch a three-year-old in action. Who tells a three-year-old no? They should. In fact, they ought to smack them on the head every now and then, but they don't. (laughs) And don't yell at me. I don't mean, you know, smack them, smack them, just make them stop. I hate to be around children who are running, screaming, and banging into me. I get a little testy about things like that. But and that was a complete aside. But the thing is, when I started looking at, at your book, you sent it to me, I don't know, six, eight, ten years ago. It's a long time back. And I started reading it, and I went, huh. It never occurred to me to ask why I was making sales or why I wasn't making sales. Because to be honest with you, Ben, I make more sales than I don't. So I guess I mm-hmm. was just kind of happy with the status quo and never really worried about it. That was kind of ignorant on my part, don't you think? Yeah, you were an unconscious competent. Uh, you said that before. Become, uh, well, the trick is to become a conscious competent, so you know what you're doing, you know why you're doing it, and you can do it again. You can replicate the presentation or whatever, and you can duplicate yourself if you know what you're doing. You can tell others what they're doing, Jimmy Rucker, the greatest salesperson I ever worked with, personally worked with, uh, and he was, we nobody knew it, but he was my beer-drinking, skirt-chasing buddy in high school. Uh, I had no idea he was a great salesperson, but he was a natural, and uh, he's one, he was like Zig. He was, he was born to sell and didn't know it till he was get, thrown in the pond, and off he went. Uh, but he was a horrible sales trainer because he was an unconscious uh, competent. He couldn't tell you what he did, although he did it. His idea of sales training was, well, just just watch me and do what I do. And I say, Jimmy, that's they want A, B, C, D. They want a roadmap. They want to feel comfortable. They want to plan. He said, yeah, that's what I said. Watch me and do what I do. <laughs> that makes perfect sense if you're him or yeah, me. If you're him. I'm kind of the same way. It's like, just do what I do. (laughs) I I was one who needed a script. I needed, you know, I I was funny and pleasant, and I knew I could make friends easily and so on, but it was just a, I was a wandering generality instead of a meaningful specific. Through scripting and training and studying and all, I became a meaningful specific, and that, for me, saved me. Uh, when I was forced into learning the script and using it, uh, we had joined the cosmetic business. The first people around me were making all sorts of money. First six months we were in the business, we didn't make a penny, not a penny. I guess I was saying, you know, watch me, Rucker, and do what I do when I should have been <laughs> watching them if he'd known he was early in his career too. Uh, but I, I didn't know what to do. And then the guy who recruited me in the business told me not to come to the meetings anymore because I was beginning to depress people. He said, you're here every night. You don't bring anybody with you. 
uh, people think you you you're part of the in crowd because you're here every night. They raise their hand. You come over. You don't know what you're talking about, and you not only didn't bring any prospects, you blew off theirs. Um, so remember the scripts I gave you the first day. Yeah, I want you to go learn them. And until you've learned them word for word, don't come back to any more meetings. So I did. And I'm cutting the story somewhat short. I did. And in the next six months, we made $140,000 part-time in 1965 dollars. That's about what times 10, about a million today's money would be about a million four hundred thousand in six months part-time. I didn't want to give up my job with my father because I was paying $100 a week, and you want security in your life. So. I was not only untrained, I was scared to death. But the scripting got me doing the things I should be doing. In other words, I was saying things I wouldn't have had the nerve to say, except they were in the script they made me memorize. And uh, that's where a lot of the closures part two comes from. These are the lessons I learned as I went along and the things I've observed. And then I just wrote them down in simple, uh, uh, simple English. And, you know, scripting is important no matter how small a deal you think it is. As you know, this podcast is now in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts in the world, and I thank all of my guests, and I thank you for that. It's not me. It's all about y'all. But I do insist on having a pre-interview because, I mean, it's an hour-long conversation. We need to like each other. We need to have good conversational abilities. And, you know, I do five or six of these each Tuesday and I would catch myself wandering around and and asking the person that I was talking with at that slot, did I already share this with you? You know, know, please stop me if I did. So I finally sat down because there's some pretty important things that they need to know. I'm inviting them onto my podcast, but there, you know, some little techie things and there's things that they really need to know to say, yes, they're already a warm market. They already want to be there, but still it's polite to ask them. So I wrote a script, and I don't necessarily read it, but all the high points are there, and I don't miss them. So nobody comes up and says, well, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, you did. You know, we talked about it. But, I mean, it's never been a problem, but it was embarrassing for me to say, did I already say this? If I did, I'm sorry. I was starting to feel a little bit stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a southerner, so we as are you, and therefore we get to repeat things. Yeah, we do. We do. Well, listen, we've got two, and we do it, too. We've got two minutes. Um, anything else you want the audience to know, and what should we talk yeah, well, about let me, next week? Well, we'll talk about that during the week because I'm not so spontaneous. I'm going to blurt out the the next guest. If you're listening to this and you have something you'd really like to discuss, let Denise know or me. Let us know. Uh, and part of next time is going to be you telling them exactly what they get if you help them set up their own podcast and website and so on. You are a genius at it. One of, among oh, the reasons I was drawn to you that I was drawn to you to start with. So if you're thinking about a podcast or something, you need to talk to Denise. And on the website, she's got ways to contact us and so on. Be sure and do that. It can make a world of difference uh, in your business life and your success. So I appreciate you having me on again. It's an honor to be with you. And I look forward to next Wednesday. Me too. Well, listen, everybody, be sure to get in touch. And thanks, Dan. That means so much, too. I thought you just wanted to be my co-host because you love me. But still, I mean, I'll take the other. (laughs) That too. (laughs) Yay, there we go. So, listen, everybody, be sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. We're all over the place. And honestly, you cannot throw a stick without hitting your partner success radio on the Internet. So just go hunt us down. Ask us questions. We will make the time to answer them as best as we can each episode. We really do want to hear from you. And if you don't have the Closers books, then tell people where to get them very quickly. Go to where they're on sale. By that, I mean lower than at my own website. Go to stores.ebay.com 
forward slash all one word Ronzoni books R O N Z O N E books and uh, I still sign all they come from a different company I still sign and date them all and they still carry the lifetime money back guarantee excellent Ben thank you and I will see you next week all right there have a great day Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 